0: Good morning, everyone. I just panicked. I looked at my notes and thought, I've got the wrong notes. So I still don't know if I've got the right notes. Give me a second. Hmm. Uh, well, we, we'll see. We'll see as we go. Hmm. Um, uh, my name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors... Uh, here at King's Church and it's my privilege to lead the team. It is great to welcome you if, you are, uh, if you're visiting. Just so, so, just so you don't worry, that's not my stomach. So, uh, it's, it's great to uh, also be um, on the third morning of our, in, in our season of prayer, fasting and giving. The response so far has been absolutely um, amazing. Um, as, as I stand here the total is um, looking at just under £157,000 which is absolutely brilliant and I want to thank everyone who has given so generously so far for how you've engaged with it and everything uh, that has happened. I want to also appeal to those of you that are still thinking and praying and really just very much open to God to see uh, what he places on your heart, for you to be very active in that, not for you, for you not to be passive, um, but to really seek God and uh, trust him. It seems very echoey to me, is it to you? Yeah. It is. So apologies while I make a few adjustments, see if it makes any difference at all. Does it make any difference at all? No, No, not really? Oh, I'll carry on anyway then. We're going to continue our series in John's Gospel. We're looking at um, Jesus, incomparable or irrelevant. And this morning it's my privilege to look at the amazing account of where Mary uh, breaks the uh, jar, the pint jar of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. So we find that in John chapter 12. Um, verses 1 to 11. And in this season where we're thinking about money and praying and fasting and we're looking to push in with God and engage with him, I think it's so good that we keep anchoring ourselves week by week into Jesus. We keep looking at him who is the reason why we do it all anyway. He's the reason why we're here. He's the reason uh, that we enjoy the life that we do is because of Jesus Christ. Now this is an amazingly provoking story. It provoked me as I was preparing and I'm sure it's going to provoke you as we look at it today. So uh, Romans, no, John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Lord Jesus, we do say you are amazing. Lord, we do. We say you're amazing. Lord, and I I ask, Lord, would we see you more clearly this morning? I pray, would you stir our hearts? Would you open our minds? Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do your work today? Lord, I pray, please enable me to communicate what you have me say. Be with us this morning, I pray. Amen. Excellent. Well, let's start as we normally do by looking at this account, um, explaining a bit about it, um, setting the context a little bit, and then we'll look to see how we can apply it to ourselves. I think the first thing just to say is this, this is Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. He's been keeping a low pro- profile because of the um, opposition that he's been facing from the Jews in Jerusalem. He's actually been in a place called um, Ephraim for, for the last season of time. We don't quite know how long um, and we don't know quite where it was in Jerusalem either but he is now heading back towards Jerusalem and he stopped off at Bethany on the way to spend some time with his friends more than likely on the way from Ephraim to Bethany he passed through Jericho where he healed two two blind men and also Zacchaeus got converted there so all of those things probably happened on the way although it doesn't appear in John's gospel tension is building as well because it's a week before the Passover and the Jewish authorities were expecting Jesus to turn up and were on the lookout for him. So Jesus turns up on the Saturday night on the Sabbath and he has the meal with Lazarus and his sisters and with a group of other guests. On the Sunday, he goes into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. It's where they, they, they take the palm leaves off and uh, they, they say, Hosanna to the King of Kings. On the Thursday... He has the Passover meal, and then sometime on the Thursday night, or early on the Friday morning, he is betrayed by Judas, and handed over to the Jewish authorities, and by Friday afternoon, he has been crucified. And so as we read this story, this is now in the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. It's 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 right towards the very end. And we've spent the first 11 chapters of John doing the first 33 years of his life. The last 10 chapters or so, 12 chapters of John, we're going to be looking at just the very last week of his life. It all changes. The, the, um, it, we're building to the climax, we're building to what it is all about. We're a, we're a week before the crucifixion. Now as we look at this account, I wanted to look at three key players in this story. Not the main one, we're not actually going to look at Jesus particularly this morning, but we're going to look at the three, um, three of the key players. The first one is Lazarus. So just a quick thing, is it still quite distracting? No, is every, hands up if it's all okay. Excellent, I will carry on then. Brilliant. First person we're going to look at is Lazarus. Now, I want you to imagine you've been invited to that meal. Jesus has just turned up with his disciples, and you walk in, you sit down, and there, sat opposite you, is a man that only a couple of weeks ago had been lying in a tomb dead. He is there. He's eating and he's drinking. You were with his sisters as they mourned for four days his death. But right across, just as close as I am to Adrian, Lazarus is to you. How amazing that would be! A few weeks earlier, Lazarus is lazed. He's raised from the dead. And he is sat there eating and drinking with other people. You, know, you, you can't argue, can you, with a miracle like that? You were there, you saw his body being taken into the tomb. You were there. I mean, it was through tear-filled eyes, but you were there as he was taken into the tomb. You saw the the stone being rolled across. You've been with the sisters over that four-day period while they mourned, and they cried, and they asked questions like, where is Jesus? But then, then maybe you'd been there, or maybe you hadn't, but Jesus turned up, and he spoke to Lazarus. And he came out of the tomb. As we saw last time, he shuffled out, still wrapped up in the clothes that bound him. He'd been dead for four days, now he's up and about. He's eating, he's talking, he's probably gone back to work. Whatever the illness was that had laid him off, he's probably back working now as well. A real life, local celebrity, he's there. I mean, absolutely, absolutely amazing. And that's why it says in verses 10 and 11 of this account, it said, So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And it's not surprising, is it? On the back of such a miracle that there was such a response. Now, We don't see, do we, many people raised from the dead? Or I haven't seen. Actually, I haven't seen anyone raised from the dead. And I don't suppose any of us here have done either. But it's so important, and just really the first thing I just want to say on the back of this Lazarus account is, it's so important that we don't play down the importance of the miraculous with the Gospel. You see, the Gospel was never meant to come with words only. It's supposed to come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul, who was a great theologian and wrote wrote a lot of the New Testament, he says this at the end of the book of Romans, which is like a theological masterpiece when it comes to the story or the account of salvation. This is what he says. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading people to obey God by what I have said, being the gospel, and what I have done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem all the way round to um, Illichristian, illic- Yes, that's the one, John. I could hear you there. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And in the New Testament, it is very clear that when the gospel went out, it wasn't words only, but it was power as well. The two go together. And it is very easy for us in our Western culture, surrounded by a mindset that says the miraculous and the supernatural doesn't happen, it's very easy for us to settle to a word-only Gospel, where we don't really expect much of the miraculous to occur. But you cannot read the Bible, you cannot read the Gospels, you cannot read the, the New Testament with open eyes inspired by the Holy Spirit, and come to the conclusion that the the advance of the early church was word only. It wasn't, was it? It was word and spirit. It was power as well. And it's great, it's great. I thought it's some brilliant contributions this morning. Carol, I thought that the interpretation to the tongue was absolutely excellent. But a lot of the miracles and the signs and wonders that we see here aren't in a setting like this. They're in settings out there. Oh, we need to pray for more, don't we? We need to pray, oh God, would you have mercy on us. Oh God, would you raise our faith and expectancy for the supernatural. Oh Lord, we don't want to settle for where we're at now. We don't want to settle for for something where we just see the odd healing or the odd miracle. Oh, we pray, Lord, for greater signs and wonders. Lord, stir our faith. Lord, we we are surrounded by people, Lord God, who are very ill and very sick. We pray for miracles. Lord, we pray for gifts of healing. We pray for breakthrough in these situations. Amen? Amen? The Gospel is only fully proclaimed when it includes signs and wonders. That's what I read in the New Testament. First person, Lazarus. Second person, Mary. Then Mary took a pint of of pure nart, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary had sat under Christ's teaching. So if you follow the story of Mary in the Gospels you'll notice that Mary occurs at different times. Often, she's the one that just wants to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. She had heard Christ's teaching and probably found forgiveness for her sins. Not only that, her brother was in the room, he was sat at the table having been raised from the dead. Greatly loved, Mary thought she could not show too much love in return. Greatly loved, she, she, you know, how, how, whatever I give to you Jesus, it's nothing in comparison to what you've already given to me. Her worship, and in a sense this is an expression of worship, as she takes this, this bottle, it's about a pint bottle, and she breaks it on Jesus' feet. It's, it's an expression. It's a, probably in some ways the purest sense of worship that we can find in the Bible. Regardless of expense. Um, Ju- Judas, we're going to look at him in a minute. But Ju- Judas said, look, this is worth a year's wages. So what's that? 15,000, 20,000, 25,000, 30,000 pounds? That is loads. Isn't it? Now, where on earth did this come from? Was it, was it some sort of inheritance? Was it something that had been handed down to her? It wasn't like the loose change on the sideboard that she put into her pocket before she went out to see Jesus and then she gave that to him. No, she got probably the most treasured possession that she had. The thing probably the whole family knew about. Maybe it had been given to her when her parents had died or something like that. She took it and she broke it over Christ's feet. It reminds me of the story of the widow. When Jesus was watching people putting money in at the temple. In Mark chapter 12. Although the difference, there's a massive difference in the amount of money that was given, I think the heart is exactly the same. So it's Mark ch- chapter 12 Um, verses 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. You see the same heart reflected in Mary as this poor widow. You see see the same heart in Mary, this poor widow, and Zacchaeus. When Jesus explained the Gospel to Zacchaeus, there was a response in his heart that wasn't just, "I'm, I'm a sinner, would you please forgive me, now I must go to a few temple meetings. His response was actually to give half of his possessions to the poor. An immediate response. Can you imagine that? Maybe, maybe, maybe this morning, you know, we, we lead someone to know Jesus and their immediate response to understanding the great worth of Christ and everything that they have gained within the Gospel is to say, well, immediately I'll just give half of all I own. I'll just give half of all I own away. And then, if I've cheated anyone, I'll repay them four times the amount. I mean, that sort of maths doesn't work for me anyway. I don't know how it works, how it all fits together. But it, it, I don't believe Zacchaeus gave away half of his possessions because he'd been a thief and because he'd stolen from people. And therefore, if we're not thieves, hey, we don't need to worry. There is no link between our money and our worship. I think it was just a response. Probably his God was greed. His God was money and it was in a sense putting a knife in that God saying, I'm now following the only true and living God. I'm going to give generously. It's worship. What Zacchaeus did was worship. What the widow did was worship. What Mary was doing was worship to God. As as John Groves preached last week, I thought I'd better try and get a J.C. Ryle quote in just just to keep in the flow of what's going on. I couldn't find anything by pink but I've put in J.C. Ryle instead. A cold heart and a stingy hand will generally go together. That's what uh, the old saint says from a couple of hundred years ago. A cold heart and a stingy hand generally go together. And I think, just to pick up a few things, just to sort of be practical here, poverty, from my understanding of scripture, poverty is never an excuse for not giving to God. I don't, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where because someone ha- didn't have very much money, they, they Jesus said or anyone taught, therefore don't give anything. What, 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 what the Bible teaches is we give in proportion to what God has given to us. And it's a heart response. Not to a call from the front, but it's a heart response to the generosity of our loving Saviour. I think as well when I've been looking in the Bible as well, I don't think the fact that you know maybe maybe even here you're sort of sat here thinking well God hasn't spoken to me about giving, so therefore I'm not going to give. You know I haven't had that now word. I think if I can say, of all due respect, you don't need that. You need to obey what it says in the Bible. Read the Bible, be convinced of what Scripture says, and then give generously. The, the, the fact that you don't feel you want to give generously, or you don't feel compelled to give, doesn't mean therefore it's not, it's not right to give. What it means is you need to get on your knees and seek God and see what does the Bible say. Oh, I need to align my life with what the Bible says. As with any other area of scripture or teaching. I'd even say probably, and maybe there's some of you guys here and you think, well actually, I'm being very wise and careful with money, I'm saving up. I'm saving up because, because I, you know, it's right to maybe get on the property ladder or it's right to do this or to do that. Well, if I can say again with all due respect, it doesn't seem to say that in Scripture. It says, honour God with your first and your best and trust him. And trust him. And in the end, in the end it's, it's It's not because I'm asking you to. My my job's just to teach what Scripture says as best as I can. That the reason we give anything in our lives, whether it's serving or money or any bit, why? It's because we're responding to what God has done for us. As we glimpse his goodness and his mercy, it's just a natural response. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, David says, he's given this opportunity to offer sacrifices to God and someone else was going to pick up the tab. Someone else was going to pay the bill. But he says in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You know, I'm not going to have someone else pick up the tab. No, when I'm offering my worship to God, I'm paying Because that's a reflection. That's a reflection of my heart and my worship to him. Worship is costly. But also notice with Mary that that not only was it a costly act, it was regardless of reputation. For a woman to go into that setting... And so publicly display affection to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. Can you imagine if Amy did that in front of you all? She comes and she comes and wipes Adrian's feet with her hair. Pours out expensive perfume. It's 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 not something that's conservative, is it? It's not something that oh just not we don't do that. We're English. It's not proper. But, but she was so caught up with who Jesus was and what he had done for her. It was a natural overflow or expression. She worshipped. And we know, don't we, we know that she got a rebuke. I don't suppose it was just Judas was that was saying things like that. Oh, don't do that, it's just so common. I think for myself when it comes to worship, maybe not quite so much now, I am maybe getting a bit older and longer in the tooth, but certainly as a young man, every Sunday was a battle against self-consciousness. Whether it was raising my hands or jumping up and down in in, in worship or coming to the mic to pray out, every battle, every, every Sunday in a sense was a battle against being just aware of self and thinking everyone else. Was looking at me when really the only person I should have been worried about was God's view and God's perspective. Let me encourage you, church, to be countercultural, not to be conservative, but to express your love and your devotion to God. Maybe raise your hands. Maybe, maybe clap or even shout out loud. Maybe jump up and down again, not because a worship leader may encourage you to do it, but because actually you love God and you're just expressing with your whole body all that God has done for you and you've heard it before you know football matches or concerts or things like that people have no trouble with getting involved and engaging how much more when we come before the king of kings should our be our reputation be of little value in comparison to the supremacy and the wonder of Jesus Christ i'm in church And we could settle, you know, particularly without a Nigel influence. Some of you have been around for a couple of years, you'll know what I'm talking about. Nigel was excellent at stirring us to express our devotion to Jesus. She was keen, in the end she was keen to express her love and devotion to Christ. It was an exuberant expression of love and worship to Jesus. What an example let me encourage you, church, why not spend a bit of time this week going back over that story? Let your heart be warm, let it be stirred and challenged. Do I worship? Do I worship like this wonderful woman? And then we move on to Judas. With Judas we find the exact opposite of Mary. And the, the, this account of Judas is both tragic and frightening. It is a frightening thing. Judas said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas had more contact time with Christ than nearly anyone else. He was even trusted with the money bag to the bag of money that they carried around to pay for their own uh, needs, but also to give to the poor. Judas had that bag of money. He'd been sent out with the twelve and the seventy-two. So therefore he had preached and worked miracles. And there is nothing in any of the Gospels to say he was less successful than anyone else in that. He'd walked with Jesus, he'd heard the most amazing teaching ever. A couple of weeks ago he'd witnessed a man being raised from the dead. He'd seen the sick healed, he'd seen 5,000 fed. Judas, Judas was in an environment of faith. But we see in this story what desperate hardness of heart and unbelief can exist in a man. He'd seen it all, he'd had all the opportunities, and yet it didn't connect in here. Didn't connect in here. He'd been in settings like this time and time and time again. He'd been at the front raising his hands. He'd even prayed for people who were sick and they had been healed. And yet it said that he was living in an environment that was full of faith and expectation and yet over a period of time he'd been stealing money from Christ and his friends. And soon he would be selling out the saviour of the world. Soon he'd be selling him out. I mean Judas was worried about 20,000 pounds that could have been used so that he could have lined his pockets when, in, when within under a week, he'd be selling out the Saviour of the world for about £6,000. You can be among Christ's followers, but never know Christ. You can. I mean, there is no other, there is no other way you can read this story than that. When I look at the whole council of the Bible I don't believe Judas lost his salvation. I don't, don't think he was ever I don't think he ever responded to God from what I can tell. I mean it's actually unclear as to complete and final destination although I think most writers would seem to indicate he ended up in hell. But he'd been with Christ for three years. It's it's frightening. It wasn't that Judas just had made a mistake. It wasn't just at the end he made a bad call. This passage and others clearly say he'd, he'd been on the wrong path for a long, long time and was completely unrepentant and unworried. Because, because if you have a faith and a trust in Christ, it will affect your behaviour. It will. It will. You, you, can't keep, you can't keep confessing Christ, which is clearly this way, and yet in all your walking, you're going the other way. I mean, we, we all make mistakes, and we can all get things wrong, and even for a season we can walk down the wrong path. But, but in the end, in the end you, you can't. Judas had a set pattern of behaviour. This was ongoing rebellion, unchecked by repentance. Let me plead with you. If you are here and you know you're living contrary to the word of God, you know, big, big areas, you know, you, as I'm speaking now. <coughs> You feel the conviction. You feel I, I know. Don't, don't play with fire. You have a loving father in heaven. But he's also the judge of the universe. Ask for grace. Confess your sin. Find someone you trust, someone maturer in God who can help you. Get it sorted. In in this passage, we see, in a sense, the full measure. You see, you see the worshipper at one end, Mary, and you see Judas at the other. Do you know what I mean? It, within this account, you see both ends of the spectrum. Let me encourage you, we, Ah Church, for us to be authentic worshippers of God. In Romans chapter 12, it says this, if you want to see what the nature of true worship is. And it is singing songs, it is raising your hands, but it's actually, it's lifestyle. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers... Now listen listen to this. I urge you in view of God's mercy... So in a sense, what's in your view? God's wonderful grace and mercy. What is in front of you at this time? Ah, Christ died on a cross. He paid the price for my sin. I don't deserve it, but... He has lavished his grace and his favour upon me. In view of God's mercy, what's the response to offer your bodies as living sacrifices? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, if you've got the NIV, if you look at the footnotes, it won't say spiritually, it actually says reasonable. You see, all that we're talking about here is only a reasonable response to what God has done in your life already. And so where Paul says... Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. All of that flows out of the fact that I have been caught up with the cross. I've been caught up with everything I have in Christ, and therefore it is a reasonable response for me. To lay my life down for him. So whether it's with my finance, with my lifestyle, with how I serve, it's my commitment to the church, it's how I, I raise my family, my commitment to my spouse, my husband or wife, my commitment in my workplace, all of it is just a reasonable, fairly small response in comparison to the great love that God has already lavished on you. Amen. It's natural, it's, it's just a step. As left follows right, so a living sacrifice follows an understanding of all that God has done for you. And if that doesn't follow, the question I want to look at is, is what is your vision? What are you gazing upon? What is it you are looking at at the moment? And I'm pretty certain it won't be Christ. As you get caught up with him, it, it naturally causes other things to follow. That's why so much of the epistles or the, the New Testament talks about what Christ has already done, and then outflows behaviour on the back of it, because it catches us up, it grips us. It's a reasonable act of worship. There were many people around Jesus at that time, not all of them were worshippers. Many had witnessed the miracles, but not all of them worshipped. Many had heard the teaching, but not all of them worshipped. Many ate, talked and walked with Christ, but not all of them worshipped. As a church, we would be a worshipping church. Yeah, we are. And I'm, for many cases, I'm talking to the converted in more ways than one. But I say these things because I don't want you to to forget what this is all about. It's so easy just to get caught up doing church, isn't it? You know, attending the next meeting. What about us to corporately together as a church? I think verse three sums up what I'd love. The uh, the the reputation of us to be like Sunday by Sunday, and as we meet in community groups, it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So I'm not asking you all to wear nice perfume and aftershave, you know, when you come on a Sunday morning, so that we all smell nice. But I think it's a great picture of worship, as we gather each individually, abandoned to God, laying our lives down, not just on a Sunday morning, but every day of the week in worship, offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God as we gather this whole place filled with the fragrance of God's presence and our devotion. What a place to be. What a place to be. That we're worshippers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think the other thing though that I got from this passage and we haven't touched on it at all yet I will just briefly touch on it um, as we look to draw things to a close is this in verse 8 and it's a curious thing it's a curious thing he says Jesus says you will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me and, and he talks, doesn't he, about that in the passage. That's the other sort of underlying thing that comes through. This whole thing, Judas, and it's a bit of a smokescreen, I think, really, Judas raises the whole issue of the poor when the comment, where John would actually say he wasn't interested in the poor, he was interested in lining his own pockets. But actually the whole issue of the poor and Jesus' response to this is very interesting. You know, does it mean that we're not to give anything to the poor? Is, is, that, is that what this is supposed to be. Is Jesus slipping in a bit of teaching here to say actually we're not to worry about the poor? Well I think we can clearly say even just by reading this passage that is not the case because they had a bag full of money where they gave to the poor out of it. So it's clearly it was a principle of Jesus' ministry that they were generous in giving to the poor. And we know about Jesus himself he wasn't one for collecting personal possessions. We know he had nowhere to lay his head. He had no home or a place where he called home. He used what he needed, he didn't collect possessions and he didn't leave a big inheritance. His only possessions at his execution were the clothes on his back. Church history would say that the church has often been the leader when it's come for care for the poorest and neediest in society, isn't that right? If you know anything about church history, you'll know that, that the church has always played a key thing. John Wesley, if you've been reading the blog, you'll have heard this, but I will put it in next because I think it's very, very provoking. George Wesley wanted to live generously and so he decided as a young man that he would find out what he needed to live on. Not in an extravagant way, but what did he need to live on over the course of a year. So he came to the conclusion after working it out he needed £28 to live for a year. His income was thirty pounds, so he gave. So he he spent twenty eight pounds on surviving, and he gave two pounds away. The next year, though, his income doubled. He got closer to sixty pounds, but he still lived on the twenty eight, and so he gave away thirty two pounds. The third year it stepped up again and the same principle carried on. In his biggest year, if earnings is his biggest year, he earned, I think it was around £1,400 pounds, and he still lived off £30 pounds that year, 28 £30 pounds that year. He gave the rest away. And when he died, it says, all the money he had in the world was just a few coins in his pocket. In, a, in an age and a day where generally most live beyond their means, you know, work out what your income is, and generally people live about 10% beyond that. This is very countercultural. It's very different from most of us. I don't know if you're the same, but if you get a pay rise, the first thing you're thinking about is what will I spend the extra money on? I don't quite know what to do with this story because I find it as challenging as I'm sure you do. Ali Green from Bedford said this. She's at the King's Arms Church and they've, they've had an established work for the poor for many, many years. We want to love people excellently whether they want to hear the Gospel or aren't interested at all, because they have great value and worth, because they they have great value and worth to God. And as a church, that's to be in our heart, isn't it? We're to love the poor and the neediest of our town. We're to look to serve them and play our part in reaching them. I think the other thing, though, that we must say about this is that the cross must control every aspect of a disciple's life, including giving to the poor. And I think in the history of the church, there are a number of examples where social action has become separated from the church. It started off together. The gospel, a proclaimed gospel and serving and working for the poor. Both running in tandem, but over time, the gospel edge has been left, the social action has remained strong, and in the end it's been a great work in supporting the poor, but the gospel element has completely died. As with anything else we do, church, we need the gospel to set the tone and the feel for all we do in life. The cross needs to be at the centre of the disciples' life, including how we serve and work with the poor. In a sense, what we're saying, Christ is of greatest worth. That needs to stay first and foremost in our minds. Above everything else going on, Christ is of greatest worth, but actually as I follow Christ, we have an obligation to serve the poor and play a part with them. As you know, from this season of of giving that we are in, we've said that we're going to set aside um, 10% to give away. Some of it to support overseas mission, but some of it to see a work for the poor established here in Hastings. Because as a church, unless we are affecting and helping and supporting the poorest and neediest in our community, we're, we're not functioning as church. Not fully, anyway. And whether they come to know Christ or not, our mandate is still to serve and to love and express God's love, both verbally and practically. It's not just one or the other. It's not a gospel of words without action, nor is it just action without words. Because if you don't explain why you're doing it, people won't know who to thank. If you don't know why you're doing it, people won't know who to thank. So it's very important that the gospel and and, and social action stay close together. Our town needs people who are intoxicated with Christ, who start the day on their knees, who are wonderfully and totally Christ-focused. But our town also needs people that, that are interested and care for the poorest and neediest in our town and express it in practical ways. And we're committed to both. We want to see both happen as an expression of who we are and what we believe. Ali, can I ask you to come up please and, uh, with the band and uh, we're going to worship God. I thought, as we're looking at this story of Mary, we can't finish in any other way than to worship him. Some of you who are sharp here today, you'll be thinking we haven't taken the offering yet. Now that's deliberate because we're going to take it at the end of the meeting, and as I said at the very start of the preach, um, I am so thrilled by the extravagant generosity of those who have so far given. But I know there's many of you who are yet to give, and I want to give you this opportunity. There are the um, pledge forms are there. Please go get one, fill it in, and as the offering buckets go round, um, in, in probably about 10 minutes' time, you can put your pledge in. You can play your part as we look to see Hastings' reach of the Gospel, as we look to change this building around so actually we can get more people in here. Not, not more in this auditorium, but actually in our, with our children's work and all the other things that we need to do. We need to create more space. Let's stand on our feet and I'll pray and then Alid will lead us as we worship. Oh Lord, we are provoked. Lord, when we read this account, that includes both Mary and Judas. Oh, we're provoked. Lord, we say in our hearts, Lord, we're we're worshippers. We're worshippers. We love to worship you. Keep leading us, Lord, on in your truth. Lord, I pray if there are areas in lifestyle... That uh, are just so contrary to what your word says and to who you are, Jesus. I pray for the gentle conviction of your spirit to come in. Lord, we, we're not a people that love you only with our words, we're a people that love you with our actions as well. Oh, God. As we worship you now, as we offer up our words, would you accept it as a pleasing aroma of worship to you? Would you move our hearts? Would you draw us after you? Would you gather us up? We say as we're praying and fasting, Lord, we we want to know you better. We want our hunger for you to grow stronger. Lord, we don't want to stay as we are. Oh Lord, come and have your way among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.